yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Dan Dunn. It's President's Day. Well, at least it is right now when I'm recording this. It's President's Day. I don't, I don't know when you're listening to the show. Sorry, I'm just not keeping up on your podcast listening habits. But I do appreciate that you're listening at all. That, that, that's for sure. So yeah, President's Day got me thinking. What, what is it that our presidents, uh, what kind of adult beverages... Have the leaders of America drank over you? What were their favorite tipples, if you will? Or who were the ones that didn't drink at all? But first, I, I did a little digging into the history of the holiday itself, President's Day. Now, bear with me here, but I just love history. So, you know, the President's Day was initially celebrated on George Washington's actual birthday, which is February 22nd. And it was the first federal holiday that honored an American citizen. And they used to celebrate it with balls and receptions and speeches and all kinds of fanfare. Now, in 1968, Congress passed... By the way, let me stop. Remember when Congress could actually pass laws and acts and things? Remember that? That used to happen. Well, back in 1968, they passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act which moved the celebration of several federal holidays, including Washington's birthday, to Mondays. And the reason they did this was so that the workers would have more three-day weekends. Keep the proletariat in line. Make them think you're making their life better. That's right. Five times a year, you're going to get an extra 24 hours to do all the shit you couldn't get done during the week because you're working too hard. So the uh, Uniform Monday Holiday Act took effect in 1971, and Washington's birthday was shifted to the third Monday in February. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait, man, you've referred to this as President's Day and Washington's birthday. Okay, let me clarify. The federal holiday is officially designated as Washington's birthday, but it's commonly referred to as President's Day. The shift in the name, I guess you could say it's celebrating all the presidents, but really the holiday was also associated for a long time with Abraham Lincoln. His birthday is February 12th. Again, Washington's the 22nd. So when you think President's Day, most people think Lincoln and Washington. And some states had already been celebrating Lincoln's birthday as a separate holiday. So they they combined it into President's Day. And, and again, while it's primarily associated with those two, it never actually falls on either of their birthdays. And it, and it falls near the birthdays of some other presidents, uh, William Henry Harrison, whose birthday is February 9th, and Ronald Reagan. That's right, the Gipper, February 6th. And as I alluded to, there aren't, you know, there used to be, a lot of parades and public gatherings for President's Day. But now the holiday is mainly known for shopping. 
Just sales, 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 sales. President's Day sale. A lot of mattresses, cars, furniture, selling you shit. That's right. They gave you that extra day off so that you could use your hard-earned money to buy stuff you probably don't need. But hey, ain't that America for you and me. All right. Now that we've established the holiday itself, I want to I want to take a look since this show is called What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What were some of the favorite alcoholic beverages of our US presidents? And we'll start with Washington. The guy, it all began with George. And you know, you should know this by now, but George Washington was a whiskey man. After his presidency ended, he actually established one of the largest whiskey distilleries in America, at least at that time, on his Mount Vernon estate in Virginia. And he got the idea from his farm manager, who was a Scottish guy named James Anderson. And he had some experience in distilling, and he was the master distiller at the Mount Vernon distillery owned by George Washington. They started making whiskey in 1797, and it became very successful by, excuse me, 1797. And then by 1799, they were producing about 11,000 gallons of whiskey a year, which is nothing by today's standards, but a lot back then. It was, uh, it was a profitable venture for our first president. And uh, they made that whiskey primarily with rye in the mash, a little bit of corn and malted barley as well. And they, you know, they sold it wherever they could on the East Coast there. He actually was credited, Washington and his team, with a lot of innovation in distilling. He expanded his distillery at five copper pot stills and a, and a big boiler for increased production capacity and many distilleries followed suit over the years. They ceased operations shortly after Washington died in 1799, but a few years ago or back in the early part of this century, distillery was reconstructed at Mount Vernon based on archaeological findings, historical records. They pieced this thing back together and now it serves as a museum and educational center where Booze hounds, or visitors, if you want to call them, can learn about Washington's whiskey production and distilling in the 18th century in general. So there you have it. George Washington. John Adams, was a uh, he loved his alcohol, apparently. He started almost every day with a hard cider. Then he'd move on to beer and rum and copious amounts of Madeira. John Adams was a drinker. And of course, there's Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson loved wine. That's right. That was his drink of choice. And I know this. I did a lot of research. In fact, in my book, American Wino, Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues, available wherever fine books are sold. Get online. Get a copy. We're making a movie about this. We are. There'll be a lot more information about that in the future. But in Wino, I wrote about uh, Thomas Jefferson, because I went there and visited Monticello, which is where Jefferson lived and tried to make wine. So Virginia was the home to the first commercial winemaking venture in the United States. It actually started two years before this place was even called the United States. State States. Eh. Don't, 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 don't. The Virginia Winemaking Company was founded by Jefferson when he was 31 years old. But his love of wine goes back further than that. In 1760, 
When he was 17, he matriculated at William and Mary College in Williamsburg. And, you know, college kids back then liked to drink just as much as they do today. So over the next few years, uh, TJ fell in with two of the most notable venophiles in the colonies. Uh, Francis Fauquier, it's F-A-U-Q-U-I-E-R, which I choose to pronounce fuck yeah. And he, he was the royal governor of Virginia. And then George White was Jefferson's law tutor. And both men had expansive cellars filled with old world wines. And they introduced young Thomas to the pleasure of these fine wines. Now, I got to imagine Jefferson's aha moment with wine was similar to my experience when I was traveling around France drinking incredible Bordeaux vintages and, and, and all around the United States. Parallels are eerie, I think, between the two of us. Um, for instance, after his wine awakening, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and helped found America. After my awakening, I wrote a bunch of dick jokes and binge watched Veep. It's like we're the same person. Except I never had sex with any slaves. I think we know who has the moral ground here, don't we? Okay, anyway, over the next decade, Jefferson's interest in wine intensified and he built an impressive collection of his own wines. And then uh, on a fateful day in 1773, one of his wine brokers swung by Monticello with an Italian winemaker named Philip Mezai. And now Mezai had spent 18 years selling wine in London and had come to the New World with the intention of cultivating old world grapes, which we call vinifera. Indeed, uh, Mazai was on his way to a, a parcel of land in Augusta, Georgia, that had been promised to him by the Brits. When he saw the land at Monticello, though, oh boy, did he perk up. He, he knew. Primo grape growing location. So he, uh, you know, him and Jefferson got to talking and they struck up a partnership. So Mazai got some land. And the assistance of Jefferson's, um, what did they call it? It was an uncompensated workforce, I guess you could say. And in exchange for planting and maintaining vineyards at Monticello. And uh, Mazai was also very taken with the, or the cause here in America. You know, freedom, revolution, which was cooking along at, underground at the time. And so he endeared himself to many of the founding fathers. So a year later, 1774, when the Virginia Wine Company was born... Jefferson, George Washington, and several other prominent colonists were among the first financial backers. Now, the ideals were unassailable, but their timing was for shit. Because, you know, what was going on around that time, right? Two years after they formed the Virginia Wine Company, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and George Washington suddenly had to spend an inordinate amount of time on the road, fighting. By 1778, the colonists found themselves in dire financial straits. Eventually, it got so bad, they sent Mazai, their bestest paisano. He'd become quite the patriot, as I mentioned. They sent him to Italy to rustle up some more money for the war effort from his rich Italian friends. So rather than let the estate lie fallow during this time, Mazai rented the place out to a guy named Heinrich Riedisel, who was a Hessian general that was captured by the Americans and was being held as a prisoner of war. Now, the fact that a POW was allowed to rent out a plush Virginia plantation is just another example of how civilized war was back then. Wait, let me check my notes. No, no, that's wrong. Sorry, I got it confused. War's never civilized. This is an example of the fact that when you're rich, you can do whatever the fuck you want. All right, so Mazai leaves 
Radiesel there on the property where they got the, the grape vines are starting to grow and produce some grapes and all that. And now in a, in a development only everyone could have seen coming. It turns out that Mazai airbnb this place to an opposition general was not the best idea. Radiesel, in a truly impressive dick move, put his horses out to pasture in the baby vineyards that Mazai had so lovingly cared for over the previous four years, and these horses went to town and destroyed the vineyards. They ate everything. Jefferson actually wrote later in one of his journals, quote, the horses in one week destroyed the whole labor of three or four years and thus ended an experiment which, from every appearance, would, in a year or two more, have established the practicability of that branch of culture in America. End quote. This imparts another important lesson. Always check the no pets box. Always. Yeah. So anyway, the Virginia Wine Company would never produce a single bottle of wine setting a new standard of productivity that government officials have been trying to live up to ever since. On the plus side, though, the Americans won the war, paving the way for Jefferson to succeed Ben Franklin as French minister. Now, his friends thought the change in scenery would do him good after the death of his wife, and, and he ended up staying there for five years. And during that time, he took two major wine expeditions, producing important historical documentation, uh, documentation of that period's winemaking customs, along with copious tasting notes. Apparently, I'm not the first person to think of using a wine road trip to mend a broken heart. <sighs> I'd say... Jefferson was a better man than I, if not for the fact that he sent for Sally Hemings three years into his trip. Whew. Thought I was losing the moral high ground there for a second. So anyway, his efforts to grow the wine failed, but he was enormously influential on American taste in wine, pushing us towards the drier, low-alcohol wines favored by the French and Italians, as opposed to the syrupy, high-test plunk that the British like to throw back. Jefferson was instrumental in establishing European-style wines as a staple at White House dinners, starting with the Washington administration. Now, if Mazai had been given a few more years to get Monticello's grapes in shape before they were trampled by these Teutonic demon horses, who knows how much faster we might have started catching up with Europe on wine quality. So there's that. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more presidents and what they drank. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that oh, right? Sorry. What We're no, Drinking? It's amazing. It, it's it amazing. Right, it's just, is it right? It's completely right. Because yeah. you're looking at me like I no, just said your it, name backwards. It, no, it just sounds like a... Uh, it's so sultry that oh, I nice. can barely stand it. All right, try okay, it again. Let me try it. And, don't, <laughs> and don't, be not, don't not be sultry. I'm not okay, okay. encouraging you to not be sultry. Yeah. I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And now a word from one of our dream sponsors, Harvey's Bristol Cream, circa 1979. David, would you like to come over for a drink tonight? Kate. I can't believe I wrote that. I'm glad you did. Until recently, I'd never have invited a man over for a drink. 
it wasn't considered respectable. But this is now. And when you're serving Harvey's Bristol Cream, it's more than respectable. It's downright upright. Harvey's Bristol Cream. Say, David, are you free Tuesday? <laughs> and we're back. What's that, you're wondering? What did Franklin Pierce like to drink? The answer is everything. Poor son of a bitch died of cirrhosis of the liver at age 65. When he was up for re-election in 1856, the Democrats didn't support him. And he said, what can an ex-president of the United States do except get drunk? And how about that William McKinley, huh? Our 25th president. He has the distinction of being the only former leader of the free world to have both a mountain and a cocktail named in his honor. Well, he did have the mountain anyway until uh, Barack Obama decreed that Mount McKinley be renamed Denali, which sounds vaguely foreign. Anyway, McKinley's Delight is a variation on a classic Manhattan, and it was created in 1896 during McKinley's first bid for the White House. Recipes vary, but you can't go wrong with the version served at the Whiskey Library up in Portland, Oregon, and that's an ounce and a half of Knob Creek Rye, three quarters of an ounce Library Vermouth Blend, which is three parts cokey, two parts Punta Mess, and one part Carpano. You need a teaspoon of cherry honey. You stir all of this over ice with lemon peel strain into a chilled coop spritzed with herb saint. There you go. McKinley's Delight. Theodore Roosevelt liked the mint julep. That's right. Author Mark Will Weber lists the favorite adult beverage of every U.S. president in his, his book, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt. Now, the book title and unshakable reputation aside, the original Rough Rider, that's what they called Teddy, stubbornly maintained he had but a passing interest in alcohol. And the law agreed with him. In 1913, he won a defamation suit against a Michigan newspaper editor who'd labeled him a drunk. And while on the stand asserting his self-restraint, our 26th president extolled, quote, a fine bed of mint at the White House and fested he may have drunk half a dozen mint juleps in a year. But who's counting? If you have but one mint julep in your lifetime, friends, do yourself a favor. Have it at the lobby bar at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh my goodness, do they make a mint julep. Better yet, make like Teddy and have a half a dozen. FDR, the man whose signature ratified the 21st Amendment, which ended the blight on American society known as Prohibition. Roosevelt will forever hold a special place in the hearts of tipplers across the land. Ah, but our 32nd president didn't stop there. Legend has it FDR traveled with a portable martini kit. Baller! Come on, really? Actually put it to good use during World War II at a meeting where he introduced Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill to the dirty martini which he served with an olive and a lemon twist. Now, once these three giants, world leaders, were good and snockered, they banged out a plan to save the free world. We shall never surrender! Years later, when relations with the Soviet Union went south, Nikita Khrushchev would call the martini America's lethal weapon. There's a guy who needed to take the edge off, huh? Lyndon Johnson. Oh, yeah. Lyndon. 
Author Brian Abrams explains in his book, Party Like a President, True Tales of Inebriation, Lechery, and Mischief from the Oval Office, LBJ had a hankering for blended scotch whiskey. That's Cuddy Sark. That was what he liked. And he often drank it from a styrofoam cup at his Texas ranch. Johnson had this Lincoln Continental convertible customized with mud grip tires and a reinforced undercarriage to cruise the ranch, Abrams told the History Channel. Quote, He'd drive reporters around the ranch and he would stop and stick his styrofoam cup out of the window whenever he needed a refill from the portable scotch bar in the trailing Secret Service vehicle, end quote. It's a different time, of course. These days, if a president wants to go mobile when he's smashed, he'd just call an Uber. In quieter moments, LBJ was known to temper his whiskey with branch water. Combo served today all over, all over the place. I like it at the Round Robin Bar in Washington, D.C. Ronald Reagan. Unlike the GOP's current standard bearer, the Gipper wasn't a fan of walls. Also wasn't much of a drinker, save for an orange blossom or two on special occasions. What's that? What's an orange blossom? Come on. It's the kissing cousin of the screwdriver. Equal parts gin and OJ, shaken over ice and strained into a cocktail glass. It was all the rage in the era of authentic species. He's back in the day. Speak, I can't even say the words I've been... Just thinking about drinking makes me slur. You can add a little bit of sweet vermouth if you're into that sort of thing as well. I had an orange blossom not that long ago at the at the bar at the Hotel Bel Air. That's right. You know it. It's in the heart of the Tony Enclave where Dutch Reagan wiled away his last days on Earth. Then there's, of course, President Barack Obama. Barack proved time and again to be as cool as the other side of the pillow. And O sealed the deal at a White House Super Bowl party in 2011 when he became the first commander-in-chief in history to brew, bottle, and serve his own beer at the White House. No word on how he did playing flip cup that day, but I bet he won. He's a winner. Now, not every president drank. In fact, I actually looked up and found a list. I got a list for you right here. Non-drinkers. Presidents that did not drink or used to drink and gave it up. William Henry Harrison. Benjamin Harrison. Taft, it's funny, man, because Taft was a big son of a bitch. He was like 325 pounds, but he didn't put that weight on from drinking. Uh, Honest Abe Lincoln, not much of a drinker at all, but he did own a tavern in his youth. Jimmy Carter didn't drink while in office. I don't know if he ever drank. George W. Bush, of course, really used to love drinking to the point where he couldn't love it anymore and stay alive, so he... He quit drinking and uh, he did, you know, but he used to be a beer drinker, I think. Donald Trump claims to be a non-drinker. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's possible that's not true. In fact, if he was a heavy drinker, that would explain so much. But uh, my guess is he doesn't. I remember years ago, I when Trump vodka came out, I got a press kit. And this is a long time ago. It's long gone, too. But there was a press kit and Trump was bragging about how it's the greatest uh, vodka ever made. It's the tastiest vodka ever made. And, and then in the same press kit, it mentioned that he doesn't drink, which at the time I thought was, well, that's ridiculous. Who would say something so crazy like that? Like they know it's the greatest vodka ever made when they haven't tasted it. The answer, Donald Trump. I love the poorly educated. And Joe Biden, who's in the office right now, not a drinker. You see him shuffling along. You might think he's drunk these days, but... I'm kid, I kid. I like Joe. Come on, Joe's my man. But he doesn't drink. And there you have it. Presidents and drinking. Courtesy of what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. 
I invite you to follow me on Instagram at the imbiber podcast. Instagram is WWD underscore podcast. We put lots of videos and fun things up there for your enjoyment. Shows we got coming up. We got, uh, we're doing a bourbon and barbecue episode at Baby Blues Barbecue, which is reopening in Venice Beach. Famous Baby Blues had a fire about 16 months ago. They've been closed. And they're finally reopening. And me and my good buddy, Eddie Zamora, who's known as the Yum Yum Foodie, we're going to go in there and we're going to pair American whiskeys with barbecue dishes and tell you all about it and how you can do it. And yum. And then we got our old pal, the great Phil Rosenthal, is coming back on with Tom Caltabiano, and and we're going to do Irish whiskeys right in time for St. Patrick's Day. Got all that coming up. And uh, as I teased earlier, hopefully I'll have some news for you on this American Wino movie soon. Until then, stay thirsty, my friends. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams. Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Harrison, John Tyler, James Polk, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore.